And so I, I see human dignity as a super important uh, thing that bonds us all together. And so if any of this technology were used to diminish that, I would I would think that was a crime, right? That's wrong. We should be using technology to build uh, better lives for people. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Parton, and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio. This week, I'm honored to be joined by MIT professor Rosalind Picard, who not only founded the field of affective computing, but is easily considered one of the most impactful inventors alive. In this episode, we explore affective computing and its many impacts on society, which takes us on a tour through concepts as wide-ranging as manipulating emotions, treating health challenges, surveillance, social robots, and a whole lot more. And with that, let's jump into it. Everyone, please welcome to the feedback loop, Rosalind Picard. Well, then I think the most natural place to start with you is to just make sure everybody is on the same page. And that means one simple question, what is effective computing? Effective computing is spelled with an A, although in the early days, Nicholas Negroponte told me that it was nicely confused with effective computing with an E, uh, and I hope that is still the case. I define the term to mean computing that relates to, arises from, or deliberately influences emotion. And, and on a more tangible level, what are some of the, I guess, aspects of emotion or affect that you are able to capture in effect, affective computing? Yeah, the first problem I thought was computers need emotional intelligence. They, uh, People were getting mad at computers. They were cursing at them. They were kicking them. They were furrowing their brow and shaking their fist. Uh, and I heard in Texas, one guy shot his computer through the monitor and the hard drive and a chef in New York picked it up and threw it in the deep fat fryer. People were so mad and computers could be taught to see that what they just did was annoying, but they hadn't been taught that. And our lab was working, the media lab was working on perceptual computing. And I thought, you know, one of the things that needs to perceive and know how to respond to is the customer's experience, right? The um, user's emotions. So the first focus of our work in affective computing was to give it the ability to recognize something that you are expressing and then um, respond more intelligently to that. And then that branched out, we were starting work on wearables at the time too, and we started monitoring the physiology and the behavior to see if we could understand more about your affective state changes uh, with that data as well. Always taking a multimodal and contextualized approach because the context matters too. And you kind of mentioned there about the timing of things. I'm, I mean, I think it's fair to say you've been credited with starting the field uh, since maybe 95, 97, depending on the paper you're looking at or the publication of your book. Um, in that time, I'd say we're about 25 years now in the future, kind of how have things evolved in the field? Are we, are you seeing with things like AI, a rapid increase and in, in what affective computing is capable of? Yes, things have moved quite fast. I think the, um, Emphasis on in computer vision, deep learning in particular, has accelerated the facial 
expression recognition and more gestural and body movement analyses, and of course, textual analysis, sentiment, speech, uh, you know, interpreting how something is said and mining lots of data online also for, uh, you know, improving as, as we know with, you know, chat GPT and GPT-3 and things like that, uh, much more large language modeling that is uh, giving, you know, a bit more sophistication to those affective dialogues right now. Although machines still have no feelings, they don't think, they don't know, they don't really learn, you know, it's just our language that is wrong <laughs> right. when it comes to a lot of how we describe it. Do you think that's going to change? Uh, good question. I think we're getting better and better at simulating the appearance of these human-like traits or traits that we attribute to other animals. We, you know, we can, there's the old saying of if you want to catch a liar in lie detection, uh, keep them talking, right? And with the machine, you know, for short assessments, you can fool a lot of people. For really long assessments, you know, you'll probably suss out the, the problems. Mm. So you think in, in shorter interactions and in, in the near term, it might be more convincing, but as we get into more kind of robust experiences and relationships with technology, it might fall apart a bit until we maybe make some major advancements. Yeah. And it depends what you mean by fall apart. Like, do we really want to misrepresent these machines as having all of these abilities in the same way we do? Uh, you know, there may be a place for that, but in general, I'm not a fan of, uh, not telling the truth, right? I like to tell the truth. I like to be upfront and honest. And when when and if we use deception in a study, it's under an IRB with careful uh, independent scrutiny of how we're doing it. And then always with debriefing people afterwards. Right. Are there any aspects of affective computing that maybe are really common in our day-to-day -day lives that a lot of people just don't realize are there? Is there a lot happening behind the scenes that maybe the average person just doesn't realize is happening? There is. If you are calling a call center and you're an angry customer or or the occasional happy customer, uh, there is uh, vocal affect analysis. Certainly in voice assistants, people who use uh, the Siri, Alexa, and similar, those they're, they have huge teams paying attention to the affective state of, of the caller, of the speaker. There are increasingly, you know, deployments with uh, face expression analysis, a bit controversial because um, as you can imagine, you know, there can be misuse of that as well. Uh, actually, there can be misuse of all of these kinds of technology. So there are, uh, you know, attempts to tell if people are being um, authentic, you know, and um, th there's a lot, there's a lot out there now. Uh, there's also a lot of wearable affective data that is now understood to be critical for health, really important for mental health, for neurological disorders like epilepsy, for MS, for lots of different things. And as we learn about those connections between our affective system and every organ in the body, we recognize that modeling and understanding how our affective state changes uh, can help us better manage disease and I think prevent a lot of illness too. Yeah, are these devices that you're talking about, are these often ones that are very targeted towards 
particular uh, illnesses or diseases or, you know, are, is the regular old Fitbit or Garmin that somebody has, is it able to really do much to provide that same kind of data? You know, does the oxygen tracker and the galvanic response, is this really telling us enough to kind of have that same impact or is it, does it need to be more specialized? You, you need to be smart about how you use these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it depends what you're trying to conclude from it. If you're trying mm-hmm. to just look at one output data point from these things, I'd be really skeptical of whatever people are claiming with that. Uh, also, if you're doing studies with them, which we do at MIT a lot, and full disclosure, I'm a co-founder and shareholder of Empatica. Uh, it's Italian for empathetic, spelled with an E. <laughs> and at Empatica, we do. Um, we partner with people doing studies in uh, in industry and in academia, lots of different kinds of research studies. And what we what we find is that you you still need to do a lot of extra work. You can't just read mm-hmm. one value from the wearable. You need to contextualize the values. You need to look at them in the context of time. What's typical for a person's rhythms. Uh, you need to look at um, signal and noise, which can be different things depending yeah. upon you know, what you're focused on. And there's a a lot of smarts you have to have about it. Also, I highly recommend that I'm not the only one getting the raw data. If you're doing real scientific analyses, Um, JP Anella blogged recently at Harvard about his experience downloading heart rate variability data from a extremely well-known consumer wearable that a lot of people were using in studies and the old data he downloaded. And then he went and he downloaded new data. And then just to have it all in one place, they re-downloaded the same old data. Uh, And to their shock, the heart rate variability had changed significantly. Wow. In fact, it would change. It completely changes the results in their study, which is horrifying, right? Like how can, how can this happen? This is a heart rate variability. It's a very well-known thing. Um, well, actually, there are multiple ways to measure it, but you know the underlying signal, the photoplethysmograph, you know, and you extract the inner beat intervals, and then you do frequency analysis or other kinds of processing on it. Well, that company, very well known for wearables, did not give the raw data, and so when they changed their algorithm, his study results changed. Wow, I wonder how many studies were uh, conducted using just the outputted data. Yeah, it's it's a it's a problem if you're going to do a long-term study where you're really trying to understand the cycles and rhythms and patterns and get the context of what's going on in a person's health and life, then get the raw data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean at Singularity, a lot of what we try to do is also empower you know entrepreneurs and innovators who are kind of working more independently in this regard, and it makes me wonder: is there room for people to take these devices and maybe? uh figure out some ways to kind of life hack or optimize or do health you know diagnosing without having years of scientific training and machinery that's gonna tell them how to break everything down yeah i i'm one of those people who's been (laughs) measuring my data for decades and uh building golly i have lost count of how many wearables i have floating around my office here we have we've been learning so much and i continue to learn a lot we've had the blessing of working with neurologists who do surgery and they go deep in the brain and these patients with epilepsy, uh, you know, bore a hole in your skull. These are not the things they'll let people like me sign up for unless I suddenly get a really bad case of epilepsy. Uh, And then they go in and they can directly stimulate these regions of the brain that they're interested in, obviously for treating the seizures. I'm interested in because these are the centers of emotion and memory and attention. 
and um, stress and anxiety and pain and things that we want to help people, um, you know, better manage. So as they get that data, we get the wearable data and we start to learn just how complex, but also how much more interesting and specific these interactions are than, uh, than we thought. Like, for example, you mentioned galvanic uh, response, which is the old term uh, that we now call electrodermal activity. I think that's what you're referring to. Mm -hmm. And we used to think that just meant general arousal, right? Like if you're if you're really excited, your um, skin conductance as one way to measure electrodermal activity is high. Uh, if you're stressed, if you're trying to hide a lie, <laughs> this is one of the key signals used in lie detection. Um, that sympathetic nervous system response kicks mm -hmm. in, fight or flight, your palms get sweaty. And so we used to think this was like a singular arousal level. Uh, now we know from the direct brain stimulation and um, more fine-tuned studies of different kinds of anxiety that actually it's a patterned signal. You can get different responses on the wrists and the palm, on the left, on the right, and they mean something. And they're different in different stages of sleep and a whole lot of other really, really interesting conditions. So what we originally thought was just like a sweat response when you were stressed turns out to carry all this fascinating neurological information. So let me see if I understand this correctly. Are you saying that basically rather than just looking at are you parasympathetic or sympathetic, mm -hmm. you're actually looking at, you know, uh, different parts of the body may indicate different uh, aspects of stress. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. Wow. And the first time I, I saw something like this, I'm like, what is going on? Our sensors must be broken, right? I saw a kid who was wearing two skin conductance sensors and motion and temperature on his left and right wrists. And one side went through the roof and the other side wasn't responsive. Hmm. So I thought, well, if the non-responsive is broken you know, and flat or the through the roof is you know, like a short circuit or something. So I was debugging and I'm an electrical engineer by training. Uh, and none of my <laughs> proper engineering explanations worked. So I gave up and I resorted to the kind of debugging that I'd never done before. I picked up the telephone, <laughs> called a student at home on vacation and said, hi, uh, sorry to bug you on vacation. You know, any idea what happened? And I gave him the date and time and the signal. And this was his little brother's data mm. who had autism. He had asked me if he could borrow sensors because his little brother was non-speaking mm -hmm. and our sensors could help him see what uh, might be causing stress in his little brother's life. And he wanted to try to reduce that stress. And so I was looking at the boy's stress and it looked pretty low, except for this one weird place. Like, how can you be stressed on one side of your body and not the other? So he checks his diary and he comes back and he says, that was when my little brother had a grand mal seizure. Mm. And I didn't really, I'd heard of a grand mal seizure, but I didn't really know what it was. I started quickly researching, uh, learned about these are the most dangerous kind of seizure. It's also called a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. It's the kind that people probably are most familiar with where the person shakes, uh, loses mm. consciousness, hits the floor, can really get injured, hitting their head. And it could happen to any of us. It can happen to anybody with a brain. Nobody, uh, you know, you could be perfectly healthy today and suddenly tomorrow you're having a grand mal seizure. Uh, uh, epilepsy affects one in 26 people in America. It's a very wow. common uh, disorder that people often don't tell other people they have. So I learned a lot more about this and um, called up the top doctor at Children's Hospital Boston uh, to get the answer to my mystery about the one-sided signal. 
Yeah. Wow. I, this, this might be a bit of a tangent, but that makes me think about kind of the relationship between maybe the higher processing and the lower processing in the brain. Yeah. And one of the things that makes me think of is, and this is, I guess, one of my biggest concerns or fascinations with what you're doing is if we understand people's emotions and we can tap into it, I feel it feels like we have a lot of power over them, right? Because if you can get the amygdala active, if you can get that fight or flight sympathetic response going, it seems that you can inhibit some of those frontal cortex functions, some of that more long-term planning and strategy. Do you worry then about the ability of, you know, this emotional information being used to, in a negative way, kind of being used to hijack people's attention, to make certain things more salient, to put people in a fight or flight response so they're less critical thinkers? Absolutely. Absolutely. Or just put them in the aroused attentive response, yeah. right? That's, I mean, every advertiser and marketing person, that's, you know, what they concentrate on. Mm -hmm. How do we get their attention? And then how do we make sure we associate that with the brand, right? You want to engage them, but then you want them to associate that with the brand. And that is a huge area. In, and actually, as a teacher, I think about that a lot, too, except mm -hmm. that it's not the brand. It's I want to get that attention and engagement turned on, and I want it associated with the learning goals, right? right? I, I want them to have a great learning experience, really, yeah, they want, you want them revved up, um, yeah. but you want them in a sweet spot. You don't want them so revved up that they like are scattered and, um, you know, or like you said at the start, like I'm, I'm in a good spot. I've got my coffee, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Three hours earlier where you are, you know, you probably know your daily trajectory and you're, you know, doing your own emotion regulation to, to get in that sweet spot. I'm in my flow channel. Yeah. It's a great place to be. That's where we all want to be. And, and so that's one place where the wearable devices uh, are really interesting, you know, for people to learn about what do I look like in the conditions that precede me getting into the state I want to be in, you know, mm -hmm. usually for somebody that's like a flow state. And then how do I, uh, how do I get better control over that? So that when I want to get in that state quickly, here's what I do. Right. Well, and on that note, what about, I guess, the the data side or the regulatory side of this? Because as we're kind of discussing here, it is really powerful. It's a really powerful tool, understanding where you are emotionally, whether you're the individual or whether you're an advertiser or whether you're a teacher, really can profoundly impact decision making and, you know, your ability to kind of, uh, I guess, be self-determined. So like, is there much happening in terms of saying, hey, maybe certain companies shouldn't be allowed to have access to this data or anything like that? There are a lot of things happening in Europe. And mm. I think we should have more things happening in the US. Uh, re recently, I did a workshop with my students on my affective computing class, which I converted to an affective computing and ethics class, because <laughs> I thought it's important to teach the ethics intertwined with while you're building an affective computing system, right? Everything from your IRB approval to thinking about what could go wrong, how might people misuse what you build right up front while you're designing it so that you're, you don't get so attached to it, uh, you know, when it's not going to be a good thing, <laughs> right? H helping people learn to question all that from, from the design phases. And we had, uh, Jeremiah um, Prossel Adams from uh, Oxford come and do a workshop with the uh, proposed EU regulations, which include, uh, I'm oversimplifying this, but think of it as like banning all uh, employer 
processing of affective data or health data, right? Sort of in one extreme case, um, especially any data that could be identified with you. And what's, th there are a lot of challenges with this. Uh, let, let me just give one, one teaser. The, it, it used to be like in the early days of Fitbit, people thought, oh, it's just a stupid accelerometer, right? It just knows somebody's shaking and moving, right? And, and if it has this trajectory, they call it a step. Right. And people who wanted to get their steps up would like stick it on the little machine over there that did this. And they would suddenly have, you know, 10,000 steps and look really good for their health insurer. Um, well, we learned in our lab that, and we've published this work, that when you're holding still a sensitive accelerometer, not only in a smartwatch, but also in your phone, sitting in your pocket right now, if you're holding still, can not only pick up you know, obviously big movements, but while you're still and you think, you're not getting any movements, it can pick up your heart rate and respiration. Hmm. And in fact, it can do it with a signature that can be used to identify you. Wow. So even this non-identifying accelerometer data, right? We think of accelerometer data doesn't carry identity, right? Well, yeah. wrong. <laughs> um, you know, we didn't know that up front, but now we know that. And the more we learn about our data, and then as soon as you triangulate and you put multiple pieces together, you can quickly identify people. I just learned who my birth parents were this year of my late life, wow. <laughs> um, you know, through triangulating with some uh, non-identifying information. Yeah. Do you feel like that approach to, I guess, data and, and, and even science is going to have to be updated? Because I recently talked to a woman, Sandra Matz. She um, was basically talking about how with her work, we're kind of realizing that every bit of data can now be used to identify somebody because there's just so much data mining that can be done. Eventually you can find your way back to somebody because if you know, mm -hmm. you know, the, where their phone is, if you know where their phone is at night, if you're tracking their GPS, like you you probably know where they sleep and their address and these kind of things. Um, and it feels like even maybe as time goes on, we'll become more comfortable with certain amounts of data being collected about us and, and not worry as much. So, we might feel really resistant now, but in a few years, it might be like, yeah, whatever, have all my stress data, you can have it. So I guess long, long story short, like, do you think we're going to see in the coming years, a lot of changes in terms of what we consider to be private information or how we consider to ethically manage this data? I, I hope we see changes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think when it comes to the good that can be done with it, there's a reason to, to get a lot of it and share it with, mm -hmm. um, algorithms and experts who care about you that can help you do good things with it. I worry in places where there are people who don't have your best interests in mind, uh, where they might use it against you. Mm -hmm. So we remember, for example, not that long ago when Hitler decided to get rid of people who had uh, what one of my autistic friends, she preferred to be called autistic, not person with autism, uh, she used to call her blog ballast existence, the German word for the ballast you would throw overboard, uh, the stuff that the, the rejects of mm -hmm. society. And she would have been one of the rejects of society because she was uh, she had lots of um, different medical conditions. Uh, so they would have said, don't want you right as part of our idealistic society. Um, by the way, she taught me uh, so many amazing things. One of the greatest teachers I could have ever had. And what we um, what we see is that these data could give people insight into characteristics of each of us 
that could be used to judge us. And I don't think it's the data that's harmful. I think it's when it gets in the hands of a bad actor who says, you know, people with this stress profile, I think our society would be better off without them. Or, pe- or you know what, this is a profile of epilepsy, or this is a pro- profile of MS, or this is a profile of diabetes, or this is a profile of depression. And we don't want these people. Um, and that's where there's potential for real harm. And I think, you know, we as a society, uh, you know, there may be people who have different views on this. My view is that everybody has uh, not just value, but infinite value. People are truly amazing, special, wonderful. And I don't care if you're uh, very disabled physically or cognitively or affectively, you're equally wonderful to somebody who has all of those abilities flourishing. And so I, I see human dignity as a super important uh, thing that bonds us all together. And so if any of this technology were used to diminish that, I would I would think that was a crime, right? That's wrong. Yeah. We should be using technology to build uh, better lives for people. I, I like Hugh Hare here and his human 2.0 and 3.0. We, you know, there's no disability. There's only bad technology, right? There's only, you know, we don't have the technology to help me do that thing yet, right? right. So we can build physical prostheses, cognitive prostheses, affective prostheses, uh, tools that help, you know, prevent or, you know, um, limit, uh, get rid of disability, right? Convert disability to superpowers. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like on that note, we are, I mean, maybe you personally, are you gaining a greater appreciation for, I guess, the spectrum of the human condition through your work? And do you feel like even as a field, uh, you know, a scientist, we're, making a lot of gains in our understanding about what it means to be a human because of this kind of data? Yeah, definitely. We are, uh, you, you know, the more I learn about people and how we work, the more I realize I don't know, for starters, it's incredibly humbling. You know, you think you understand something, to, you know, back to the EDA signal, right? We thought we understood this. <laughs> and it's like, oh, no, now, uh, when I published the first paper on this, the reviewer said, um, you know, this could be a little controversial. Would you be open to, you know, uh, you know, a special invitation of people to criticize it. I'm like, yeah, bring it on, right? You know, I know it upends more than a hundred years of thinking about these data and this signal. And, you know, it means a lot of the studies out there are wrong, that yeah. their conclusions are wrong. It also helps to disambiguate and explain why a lot of them look like they weren't replicating or had different things. Now we, we know a lot more, we can actually uh, figure out what's going on a lot better, but do we understand it all now? No, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's still a problem. So more, the more data we get, the more we learn, um, the more good I hope we can do. Unfortunately, the more harm some other people can do with just about all kinds of new insights. And we you know, need to kind of uh, engage in conversations like we're having here, engage with society uh, and make sure that we're bringing along people's knowledge and hearts and humanity with this. Because uh, ultimately, I don't think it's the technology that, that goes bad. I think it's the people using it in ways that are bad. It doesn't mean that it's all neutral, though. I, I do right. think those of us creating it have a responsibility to make it really easy to do the good things and make it as impossible as possible, right? Like it's hard as possible to do any misuse and right. certainly try to anticipate those misuses and prevent them. Well, not to be, I'm going to not be to be cynical here, but a little tongue in cheek, like, do you feel humans are 
emotionally intelligent enough to kind of navigate these waters? We're, we're getting into really complicated domains. And are, are we are we ready to have our programmers who maybe don't even have the philosophical or ethical background creating this technology? Well, they're creating it whether we're ready or not. Yeah, fair enough. You know, we'd sit around on a Friday, like I'd be running my simulations, my programs, programming, whatever, just the, whatever I was curious to do, you know, like Friday night in the lab, ooh, I'm just going to try some crazy new thing. Uh, we want to see what we can do. We are makers. We are creators. We are risk takers. We, it, it's our version of Everest climbing it because it's there. Like, can we do it? You know, we're attracted to uh, what, you know, and how we work, right? We understand how we work by building it. So these are driving powerful forces. I've never seen, I mean, maybe it's out there, but I haven't seen engineers trying to do evil <laughs> with this. You know, most people are really trying to do good. However, most of us haven't thought creatively beyond the cool problem we're trying to solve as to how it might hurt people. So for example, when social networks were set up, you know, they're like, oh, it's so cool. You can connect people. They weren't thinking about how the kid is going to feel on a Friday night or a Saturday morning when they see that their friends were at a party posting all the pictures right. and they weren't invited and they weren't told. Right. They, you know, that, the, you know, the, you know, sometimes maybe you would hear about that later, but it wouldn't live permanently in front of you on the feed. Right. Mm -hmm. So they weren't thinking through the feelings, the social dynamics, the way that lots of these little negative hits bring somebody down, uh, they, and that would require real emotional intelligence and emotional imagination, right? Projection, understanding social interaction. And really, if we had a more diverse team that had non-engineers on it, right? That think through these kinds of scenarios beforehand, maybe that could have been prevented, right? right. Maybe that could have been thought about and something more clever um, built that, you know, made that kind of pain less likely. Yeah. And, and maybe not, you know, I mean, part of the whole idea of singularity is that you can't see past the horizon and some of the stuff is just, you know, truly so complicated and complex that those second, third or fourth order effects are really hard to track and imagine. It, it is absolutely right that we can't see uh, past certain horizons, right? We can, we can build technology to get us higher, <laughs> seeing further in those horizons. Um, but yeah, I think we have to recognize that, that we always see as through a glass darkly, right? Um, we don't see it all. And we, um, I don't think we will ever see it all in this world, in this life, right? I, I think we have to recognize we have some limits there and that's humbling. You've also done some work with Sherry Turco, I believe, who, who wrote a book I really enjoyed called Alone Together. And you guys, I believe, did work on social robots. So with that in mind, you know, do, do you think that we're capable of, of creating true connections and relationships with technology as we move forward? Do you think these things like chat GPT and, and the, I guess, emotional understanding that we're, we're coming to is going to enable us to provide some true benefits and, and meaning in this domain? True. is <laughs> this interesting word here, right? What do, you, what do you mean by true? If somebody perceives that they really got a benefit, uh, I mean, in the early days of Eliza, the Rogerian chat system, super simple AI, uh, people sometimes claimed they got a benefit from chatting with it, right? It made them, it led them in the dialogue to think about something 
that maybe they needed to think about and they perceived that as beneficial. So that wasn't a, by today's standards, that was not a true AI, right? But it was an AI and it was a true experience and it was a true benefit. We can also get true harm <laughs> from some of these systems. I uh, was chatting with chat GPT and I won't claim true harm here, but there was, it stated authoritatively things that were that were made to look right, but that were factually wrong and completely wrong. In fact, you could look up easily online. It could have, it's kind of amazing how stupid it was that it wouldn't look up online some basic, simple stuff. Um, but, you know, you can't think of everything. The programmers have done some amazing stuff there. And um, in this particular case, you know, you ask it things like a favorite author's key works or something. And instead of, you know, going to Google Scholar and listing them, <laughs> it fabricates keywords, right? And makes them look like they're real and they're written by fake authors and they have fake titles that sound like real titles. And it's just astonishing. So, you know, there's room for improvement, right? I think it, what it's really good at there is synthesizing things that are are different, you know, like, like Dolly. It's really a great tool when you want to synthesize a lot of new possibilities to consider like it, like in Scrabble, you know, they always teach you like, keep moving your pieces around. You'll be more likely to spot the word when you've got it. Uh, and these tools help you move more pieces around. They help you see more images, see more combinations of words, see possibilities that uh, it speeds up your ability to do that. And I think, you know, there's real, th there is real value and real good in that. There's also harm if people, uh, take it as the authoritative, truthful uh, data that it looks like it's presenting. But do you think that we'll actually build relationships with these technologies as they advance? Yeah, I th I think we can, I mean, I mean, we've demonstrated we can build relationships with uh, AIs, even stupid little cartoony ones that that say, I'm, that apologize that their voice is some engineer's idea of natural sounding, right? They're, they're very uh, cartoony and fake. And yet we have crafted interactions with them that people have for several minutes a day over months. Tim Bigmore did this work on relational agents here at MIT. It's part of his doctoral work. And then it's continued that work, building out uh, really effective systems to helping lots of people, uh, helping people, for example, with health information and health behavior change, uh, you know, like for months during a pregnancy or months after discharge from a hospital. There's still short-term relationships, like months, you know, to achieve something but they're very effective. Um, they are enough of a relationship that they get you to come back and have some accountability, feel cared for, exchange some information, get some new information, get a reminder of something you're supposed to do, report whether or not you're doing it or need help. You know, those kinds of um, what we often call working alliance, um, like coach, counselor, therapist, somebody you would check in with. What they are not yet is able to understand you like a real human being would um, contextualize what you're doing outside of the situation that it's very narrowly scoped to handle. Uh, they, you know, if if they pretend to be able to do all that, then they're just not there yet. Uh, they'll get better and better at pretending at larger things as we give them more context. Um, but they, they, don't have the knowledge or the feelings or the caring that a real human being does. Even though they may have more knowledge in some narrow ways, right? Like um, we were 
saying the other day, you know, I, I may have two or three anecdotes that fit a particular need. The system might have a million, <laughs> right? Uh, but still, it's got to figure out like which ones matter right now. And that's still hard. That's still something that humans usually better at. Bearing that in mind, knowing that the machines that we do interact with kind of lack some of that, I guess, emotional maturity, and we are spending so much of our time exploring our relationships through things like this. You know, I'm I'm looking at you right now through Zoom, and there's probably some things with body language or just uh, little subtle cues that I'm not picking up on. Do, do you think, considering how much of our relationships are navigated through this digital medium, that we are maybe losing some emotional maturity as humans? Are we maybe, you know, putting some sandpaper and, and rubbing away at some of the finer edges of our mm. understanding? Oh, what a sad thought. Yeah, we probably are. During the pandemic, I was talking with one of my um, friends who's a professor in another part of MIT last night, who was bemoaning the fact that over decades of being at MIT, uh, she'd only seen you know, maybe, a, you know, less than a half dozen students go through this particular end of term kind of thing, you know, where you can't take the final and on and on. And just last semester, it was like um, doubled the number she's seen in her whole oh, wow. career. Right? Um, and I've seen it too, students from Harvard, MIT coming here, really more fragile than ever. Uh, and I wonder, since one of the key components of mental health and resilience is social, right? Mm -hmm. It's having that friend, you know, you're sitting in the class and something goes bad and you look the person next to you and they look like they've got it even worse and you kind of share an empathetic glance and they return it. And, you know, it's all those little moments of what's happening when you're not scheduled for that official Zoom uh, lecture or whatever, right? It's all that other stuff. And that is constantly shaping, right? And um, gosh, you know, the is it the Japanese who have the expression, you never step in the same river twice, right? The water, it's always different in shaping you. It's almost like we've removed the river, right? Well, do you, with that in mind, I mean, are you, are you optimistic about where we're going? Like, how do you feel about the future that we're, we're going into with the way we are maybe, you know, learning about our emotion through wearables or optimizing our health or the relationships being, you know, mediated through technology? Like, how do you feel about how things are unfolding in general? I think we've taken a major hit <laughs> with the pandemic. I, I worry that this generation, these students are more fragile than ever. I worry that the, this generation also that's kind of grown up on social media, though not all of them have, have succumbed to that, but many who have, um, they're more fragile. They, they don't have as many of these how to handle people skills. A lot of them don't. They may be great at handling the social media, but not handling a lot of the complexity of life. Um, I think that there's a lot people are doing trying to handle, you know, reduce their anxiety. They have very high anxiety. Um, one key thing is meditation. That does help with anxiety. Uh, problem though, is it also tends to reduce motivation, which can, you know, mean they're not going to be the go-getters, right? Where come they're not, you know, going after changing the world. So, you know, I, I am a little worried about what we've let happen. I'm still an optimist. I, I was told the other day that the, you know, plants, the grapevines that have been most stressed, you know, with drought and wind and all that stuff can produce the best grapes. So maybe, you know, maybe this trauma can be turned into something much better. I am an optimist about that, but usually it takes work to do that. And I think 
as society, we have to commit to, uh, you know, loving one another, even when they're acting in ways that are really, uh, you know, not up to what we expect and um, helping out, you know, picking up the slack, helping each other. This is kind of a, a big question, but in, in the realm of infinite possibilities with a magic wand, is there a particular issue in the realm of, of computing or, or, you know, society, the social sciences right now that you wish you could just kind of fix that you, if you could do anything, you would love to see this regulation pass or for us to interact with technology in a different way? Like, have you, have you laid up in bed at night and thought, ah, oh, if we could just do this one thing? Uh, no, <laughs> there's not just one thing. If we could change people's hearts instead of writing laws, hmm. I think that would be better. Uh, you know, write the songs of the nation, not the laws, right? Right. You know, change the culture, change the hearts, get people to care more about people first and not as a slogan or whatever uh the HCI people and CHI people would argue, you know, are we human computer interaction or computer human, you know, is it human in the center or human first? I'm like, no, that's not the point, right? The point is, you know, are you trying to build a better future for people or are you just trying to get your, get something on your resume that's AI related and technology related? And to build a better future for people, you, I, I love the African proverb, right? If we're gonna, um, if we're gonna go fast, you know, go alone, but if you're gonna go far, go together. Like we really do need to build teams that have very different kinds of people who look not only at what we can do, but what we should do. And they bring in lots of different perspectives on the kinds of impact of our ideas, maybe talk us down from some of them and uh, help us maybe go a little slower, but a little further together. Yeah, I love that. I I don't want to ask you any more questions to take away from that final note. Um, but I will, before we go, offer you just a chance to give us any final words. I mean, that was beautifully said, but uh, do you have any anything at all that you'd like to tell people about that you're working on or something you'd like to just share with people, closing sentiment, anything at all? I mean, I'm, I'm really excited about the way that uh, technology is helping people get people together. Uh, for, for example, people with epilepsy who've been scared to tell somebody that they have it, you know, are now encouraged to tell people, add them to your care app, have, you know, make sure you're not going to be alone when you have a seizure, make sure that you use an alert app. Uh, you know, we, full disclosure, as I said, uh, Empatica makes one, this FDA cleared, uh, but, you know, make sure you're not alone, whatever, whatever tool you use, make, uh, make sure that you reach out to people and find out what they're struggling with and offer to be there for somebody. And that way, you know, everybody can be a hero, right? To uh, be there to help another person. And I think when we look at when AI and technology are most effective, it's when they're it's when they're used with, with people to help people do things better. Uh, and they don't always help people do things better. <laughs> Sometimes they help us do things worse. So even if you're not an AI or technology person, you know, we technology people need you to be a part of the conversation going forward. We need you to help envision what could happen, what would be terrible, what we don't want to have happen, what would be better to have happen, and give us that feedback so that we help shape the kind of future that everybody's excited about being a part of. <laughs>